0: All right, welcome back to Collateral Banter, episode 30. My name is Danny T. I'm unsure of what to record, but I feel like I haven't recorded in a while. So this is going to be a short episode. I need some time to gather my thoughts before recording. So, But I just found some really interesting news, stories that are going on in America today that are really fascinating to me. So I thought about just sharing them and then spending time in other episodes discussing topics that I feel are important. One of the first stories I want to talk about is the fact there is a measles outbreak throughout California in certain universities. And I've seen figures that several people have been sick And a large number of people aren't getting the measles vaccine. And this is frightening to me. Again, this is another issue about social media claiming to inform people about about the vaccines. Right? Parents think that the vaccine causes autism or other issues. And because parents... Are misinformed online kids are getting sick and some will die and to me that's just so crazy so crazy how boundless amounts of information that the internet provides and humans still can't make sense about it they still can't quite come to terms with or overwhelmed by the amount of data and then If you want to believe that vaccines cause autism, go ahead, believe that. Remove your—deny your kids the vaccine, and then if they get sick, who knows what's going to happen. And I've seen figures that this is happening among middle to upper middle class Americans, which is another interesting part of the story about vaccines— how social media and the internet lead to just irrational ideas and thoughts into people's minds. And I can understand its appeal to some degree. You know, I don't want to just trash the ideas to resisting the narrative you're told in society. There is an attraction to that, I feel. I can understand its appeal, right? People want to feel like you know the truth. But everybody else in society is just a lemming, is just following the orders they're being told by their corporate masters or their government masters. And you alone know the truth, right? You've read enough articles about this. You follow scientists who who agree with your viewpoints. So you continue on. But the ramifications of this, if it continues to happen is that more and more people are going to get sick. There are going to be more quarantines. I sound a little bit paranoid, but could parts of the country be quarantine zones? And this makes me think of the future of politics, right? You're going to have quarantine zones of people who aren't getting vaccines, and are getting sick, and that's one thing. And I imagine you're going to get people fleeing El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala coming to the U.S., and now they're being, in ways, quarantined, sectioned off in cage-like structures. And then imagine the other part of politics that I, I haven't discussed nearly as much, but the environment... Right, we're gonna have environmental refugees, people fleeing environmental devastation and destruction. I'm still shocked that three hurricanes hit the United States last year, adding up to some three four hundred billion dollars in reconstruction and think about that for a second. three to four hundred billion dollars in hurricane destruction. And we're rebuilding in the same path. People better hope that this isn't a pattern that's going to continue. Because if you're just rebuilding, I don't think that's going to prevent future hurricanes from hitting those exact same locations. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen this year or in the near future. It's the same thing with Louisiana. But what does he, what do human beings want to say? No, we'll rebuild. But you have to rebuild in such a way where you can prevent mass destruction and devastation. Otherwise, you're just throwing money away, right? I'm shocked by the insanity that sometimes I see in, in civilization, human civilization itself. Just so shocking that we're repeating the same mistakes that we're having. We're just keep repeating mistakes after mistakes. And then we're rebuilding in the same areas that were destroyed and spending hundreds of billions of dollars. Hey, I guess we have unlimited amounts of money, right? Until we don't. So I'm thinking here, refugees from environmental destruction, refugees from Central America, and refugees fleeing people who are sick with the measles... This is also part of authoritarian, the construction, the building up of authoritarian in society, in American society. And I'm saying this because when you're having camps and encampments and people are being detained for long periods of time, it begins to distort liberal democracy, right, where where, People are supposed to have individual freedom. There's limits to state power. We don't see that today. We, we see that parts of civilization itself are breaking away, breaking apart. You hear this, people going back to the land, getting away from civilization, and people wanting to go back to the land. I don't know if they're trying to reconnect with people, but you're really seeing this sort of revolution in human relations, human relationships, and I, I'm fascinated by this because the the level of crisis that you see, these variables are to me are shocking. Look, I'm p- optimistic. I hope things can be fixed. I hope all of these crises that we're experiencing will 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 be fixed over time, slowly, humanely. Uh, that is my hope. However, I don't see how we can do this as a society and not encounter other crises along the way. At a certain point, you're overwhelmed by crisis. You're overwhelmed by the number of crises and the scales that they're now happening in. That, that is, I think, the, the most shocking thing, environmental destruction. It, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars in the future. And this is the maybe the issue of our time. So it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm recording this podcast. I hear people talking about these crises sort of separated from each other. But they're really intertwined. I remember back during the Arab Spring in 2011, people in the Arab world rising up. And then years later, I remember reading articles and reports where people were discussing how the environmental impact, global warming, was impacting rural farmers, leading them to leave their farms to go into the cities, and this creating tensions that these societies hadn't experienced, and this led to increased tensions in society and revolt against the government as they lost control of societies. Obviously, it's hard to say there's one cause for any issue, but I think this clearly had a role, I believe, in some countries. You know, I think about Yemen all the time, that Yemen is slowly running out of water. Imagine what will happen if a country runs out of water. It's a Civilization, society will collapse. I think people, most people here listening to the United States think from an American-centric point of view. That whatever happens over there, it's terrible. It's, oh, it's awful. I can't believe it's happening to those people. I'm glad I'm not one of those people. I'm not living there. Which, again, is just happens to be random luck that you happen not to have been born to a family in, in a country that today is dying or starving or being bombarded. But, okay, I'm fascinated by the fact that the same breakdowns that are happening in those countries have arrived in the United States. And okay, the United States might not be at the same extent as a country in Yemen, but the rhetoric that people are talking about in this country is startling to me. Okay, besides the three crises that I mentioned previous, there's also people now talking about civil war in the country, that we haven't been this polarized since 1861 i i'm just stunned by it all that that that's what that's that's the that's the level of rhetoric that people feel they feel on both sides that their the country is breaking apart i don't know how to fix that because how do you end polarization unless one side unless one side of this political feud wins, right? And then what does winning look like in a political feud? Does it mean everybody who opposed Trump must leave the country? Then the rest of the country gets to live under Trump and future Trump-like figures running the country? I have no idea. I bring this up. I believe polarization is usually solved when a national crisis breaks out the national crisis creates the conditions for these polarized political camps to come together, to give up their political feuds while the nation deals with a crisis. And oftentimes, from at least from what I've read in history books, that's how these things usually tamper down and people move on. But it does make me think, in you know, all this crisis about something that I haven't discussed in these last 30 episodes that I at least wanted to bring up in my conversations, and that's neoliberalism. There's something Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of the United Kingdom, said. There's no such thing as civilization. There's just individuals. And part of neoliberalism, a part of it, is this belief that there isn't a collective society. You can't govern collectively what's for, what's best for the public. The public doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of collection of individuals, and we're all individuals. And it, it's fascinating to me that we're seeing today, many in many ways, a, a sort of radical breakdown of civilization, of a collective us, and we're seeing us break into smaller, warring tribes and factions. And, it, and there aren't just two factions or tribes, but there are multiple factions, and there are allies within each other, and they're fighting their common enemies politically uh, so far. But it, it does fascinate me that there's this neoliberal revolution that has gone to such an extreme. Now, oftentimes when you hear this term, people, and as I was describing it, people think of this term in reducing the power of the state, cutting taxes, cutting regulation, gutting everything, and allowing individuals to pursue their own self-interest as long as they're not hurting somebody else. Something to this effect, right? And that's how a lot of people see neoliberalism as this sort of deregulation, cutting taxes, minimum state, and yes, those are all ways to describe neoliberalism. However, however, what I wanted to add here, neoliberalism isn't about merely reducing the role of the state. And what I would cite to people listening is: look at the power in neoliberal governments and societies that the government keeps for itself when it comes to issues of national security, weapons, military. Do people see neoliberalism? Now, one argument could be it's not neoliberal, they're spending today $750 billion, something like this, in military budget and so far, there's been something between five to six trillion dollars spent in two wars. if you include all the costs that are associated with those wars, the health care and all the incurred costs and that figure will rise as time passes by We'll be reaching seven eight ten trillion dollars and and so in many ways, you see sort of a neoliberalism as a way of Rewarding a smaller and smaller percentage of society, people who are doing extremely well, very affluent individuals, cutting their taxes, cutting their dereg- deregulating the economy, making them even wealthier. And at the same time, the state incurring greater and greater power in the military, in national security, in police, in border patrols, in sort of guarding the nation from these external global forces that are arising, a.k.a. terrorism, a.k.a. people fleeing their country or the cities they live in. They were devastated by environmental catastrophes. And so in many ways, it's like, yes, neoliberalism is about deregulating the state, but at the same time, an argument could be made the, the state is incurring greater and greater power as it spends more money in the military budget and in security budgets as well. If you add up all of those figures, you could easily be in $1 trillion. So there is that aspect of neoliberalism, greater state power. But when you dig in just slightly deeper, uh, one could make a counter-argument to that. The counter-argument to that is, well, yes, the neoliberal state is incurring greater and greater power in the military and spending additional resources and funds. It's interesting that the military itself is shifting away from a traditional military where they're uh, enlisting individuals to be soldiers in wars and things like this, that they're now hiring private contractors. They're hiring a private militia, private security. I remember a book I was reading uh, a couple weekends ago, and the book is on democracy. It was talking about U.S. democracy specifically, and there was a line in there that said, for the first time, there are more private security, mercenary armies, private security in Afghanistan than U.S. soldiers. And that, to me, is really fascinating, seeing this shift seems like it's a privatization of even the military, which, if we looked back at proponents of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s, they wanted to put a limit into neoliberalism. They believed, yes, the problem with the economy is that it was overburdened, there was too much union, there was too much regulation, and if we just deregulated, there would be a boom in the economy. And they thought, okay, well... Look, you need to deregulate, but let's not do the military. Let's not do... There was a debate about public education. And so there there was some limit to how far neoliberalism should go. But the fascinating issue with that is there almost seems to be no limit to neoliberalism, right? Now it is... Why does the government need to enlist individuals in a military if you can hire private contractors... Militias hire private companies to do the war on on the country's behalf. I mean, it's it's like private mercenary armies now taking orders from the government. As long as they're getting paid, they will follow their orders. And how that will change the relationship of war. And before I end this episode, and I think this is a good point to mention this. This reminds me of Game of Thrones. I always got to add this in, uh, which was a phenomenal episode this this past. Uh, Sunday. But Cersei Lannister doesn't have an army uh, at her disposal, so she got a loan from the Iron Bank, and she's hired a a mercenary army to fight on her behalf. And I think that that's really fascinating to compare to what's going on today, that we're, we're beginning to see this in the U.S., in the U.S., as it fights these wars across the world in seven different countries, at least that we know of, which I'm sure is a much it's a, it's a much larger number, than the number of countries the U.S. is currently in. But I'm fascinated by just how deep the sort of neoliberal revolution is going, and where does it stop? Where does it end? So uh, an idea I have, and maybe I'm off base in making this claim, but it's so revolutionary that it in some ways is unraveling itself. The conquest of the world economy and of the known universe and as it privatizes military and tries to and privatize education and privatize health care. What happens if it reaches the point that it has privatized everything. Is that its weakest or its strongest point? I don't have an answer. I don't know. But I also wanted to say, and this is a part of a, part of my thinking in regards to the economy, is that I am terrified about the state of the economy for the vast majority of people. Maybe I shouldn't think about the vast majority of people. I should only think about myself. But when you look at the statistics for the vast majority of Americans, the economy is not doing well for them. And that's the nicest way to put it. The economy stinks, despite the figures, right? Politicians, and you see this under Trump, you saw this under Obama, you saw this under Bush, and even under Clinton. The economy does well. Stock markets are going up. People's looking at their 401ks and feeling like they're rich again, and they're doing really well for themselves. And then the economy eventually comes down, a recession hits, or the Great Depression, or whatever, and then things aren't doing so well. They're laden with debt, and they can't get out of the debt. Their jobs aren't paying well. They aren't getting increases. They're overworked. But if you look at how the actual people feel about this economy, okay, d- despite the figures going up, people don't feel like it's benefiting them. And the number of people who don't feel like they're benefiting from this economy, it's not 20 or 30 percent. It's closer to 40, 50 percent. Despite the 3.2 percent GDP growth that the Trump administration is citing, which is strong, robust growth, without a doubt. But the benefits don't trickle down to people. It's harder and harder for politicians to sell that the economy is doing so well. In July, if the economy continues to grow, it will be the longest expansion in American history. And yet there's a great disconnect as well between the number of people who feel like the economy is working for them because it simply isn't working for them. The economy feels detached. Their wages aren't going up. Cost of everything is going up. And people can cite uh, higher education and healthcare as two examples. But everything's going up. Everything's more expensive. And it's likely that interest rates will have to go up later on this year. The numbers in the economy continue to move up, despite what the Trump administration is trying to do in pressuring the Fed to keep interest rates low or begin to cut them, which won't happen, I'm pretty sure. But to me, it's, it's a fascinating disconnect that it feels like no politician has yet found the solution. And Things to think about is what will happen in the next economy when there's a downturn and people don't feel like the economy today, which is growing, isn't working for them? What happens when the economy is crashing down and people feel like the economy isn't working for them, right? And it feels like they begin to start losing their jobs. They start losing the pay and the health care that at least they get today, What will happen to the psyche of people? What will will the outrage be? And let me connect this back to the initial stories that I was talking about. People getting news that says you shouldn't vaccinate your kids and making up a bunch of things that aren't based on facts, uh, scientific facts and, and whatnot, is that itself is one of the conditions to nominating a tyranny in American society, right? The next recession after this latest 10-year boom will likely lead Americans to look for a scapegoat to their economic and social ills that are plaguing the country. But if people don't feel like the economy is working well for them, and then if the economy takes a downturn, people will, will flee to a strong man who promises to fix their problems. And that to me is maybe even a bigger crisis than the measles, than the immigration and the, and the hurricane. Because if people in a moment of crisis flee to a tyrant to save them from their social ills, from their economic ills, where will that lead us? Where would that lead liberal democracy? Down to a radical new system, to a revolutionary system that, that, could become fascistic, lead to some dictatorship. And that to me is a terrifying thought that no one knows who this dictator could be. Makes me think of Rome in moments of crisis where where the elite fear a tyrant coming to power. So the elite strike and remove that leader from power. In many ways, this could happen to America. I think too many Americans think they're immune because America got to write world history after World War II and got to rebuild large parts of the world in its image. And that world is beginning to break down. And people feel like, no, oh, this crisis passed. America has had other crises. Certainly America has. But there were different technologies. There was a different society. There was a different people. There was a different elite. There was a different. There was a different structure and mentality and feeling in society. And a lot of the f- fixing of the social ills, the economic problems the country has had, the racial problems, the gender problems that the country has had to deal with, are, are now at the forefront of American society. That doesn't mean the country is on the verge of collapse. I'm not getting to that point. But it does make me think that the number of crises and the sheer magnitude of the crisis means that America Americans feel overwhelmed by it. And you've sensed this in a lot of people's lives, but also you see it in the government today. All right, well, that should wrap up my... Thoughts on this past couple weeks of the different political issues that are going on throughout America and the crisis that I I think we see in front of us today that don't have simple solutions that have require global solutions and uh, and requires global leadership by. Um, agencies around the world. So that is episode 30 of Collateral Banter. I appreciate you listening. I'm your host, Danny T. I hope to record future episodes and many more episodes to come. Glad that you listened. Have a good day. Take care. Peace.